It's the True Penny Show with your host, James True Penny. Hello and welcome to the True Penny Show. My name is James True Penny. This is my show, and today we're back with the Beginner's Guide to Japan, and we're looking at a very special subject. And uh, to join me on this journey of Joshi greatness, will you please welcome Miss Chelsea Spollen. How are you, ma'am? Hey, I'm pretty good. It's nice to be back. Yes, we would have had Alex Watt with us, but he's poorly and can't join yeah. us today. He's in bed feeling sorry for himself with an ear infection. Um, we're not sure when this one will go out. This is the break glass in case of emergency podcast uh, that I'm recording. <laughs> Um, because I'm moving house at some point and I need to have a spare just in case as we have a spare weekend where not much is happening in wrestling, which is unusual, let's be honest, in 2019. It's actually (laughs) almost a little bit nice because it's like the first weekend in a couple of months that I haven't felt like there were hours and hours of wrestling that I should be watching, even if I was doing other stuff. Like, it was kind of nice to have a little break. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, mean, it's a regular show. If you really wanted to, there's what, 7, 8, 12, 15 hours of pro wrestling from the four or five major corporations yeah. around the world. If, if, if you just yeah. want to have a break, you know, have a relax, this is the weekend to do it. So we've decided to go back to the Beginner's Guide for Japanese Wrestling for this week, but rather than doing the show um, reviews like we have been doing in the past, we're in this bit of an odd place in Japanese wrestling where not a lot of video evidence exists of what happened in this time period that's easily available and we don't try not to review shows that you can't see yourself easily if it's on new japan world that's Mm. fine if it's on the progressive dream account it's fine but if it's stuff we can't you can't see it's not fair for us to review it so really i can't even really review it i mean we can tell you what we think happened but that's not really like that's not an impression of what happened now, there are a couple of big shows that you can find video evidence for, which we probably will review. I'm thinking of the ninth anniversary show from FMW. Obviously, there's a couple of New Japan Tokyo Dome shows. But we think what would be more useful for you is if we do some highlight profiles of people so you have a better understanding of their setting in the wrestling world rather than reviewing a show, which does give us a nice big story to talk about. However, um, we can't necessarily go in-depth on certain people like... Mr. Yanisuke, I think, is a really important figure in deathmatch wrestling. Well, we can't really do a full episode on him, so we can talk about him in a review, and it kind of fits. Whereas, we could do, uh, like, a 10-minute episode about him if you wanted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> However, in this particular case, this is a really big character in Joshi Professional Wrestling, and uh, we're going to talk about Aja Kong today. Now, when... God wanted the devil, he made him just for fun. When he wanted the real thing, he made Aja Kong, as her jungle theme states. Aja Kong was an interesting professional wrestler from her very inception in 1986, and she is a person that's had to live through a lot of demons in her life. The son of a U.S. Marine, sorry, daughter of a writing brother, the daughter of a U.S. Marine and a Japanese native, she had nationality and racial issues early in her life and throughout her career, and she's really an example of how to live your life without fear in that particular sense. She became one of, if not the biggest star in professional wrestling in the 1990s, in the women's side at least. And she had an amazing le- She has an amazing legacy. And some 35 years later, she's still wrestling at a very high standard. Last year, she had Oz Academy's Match of the Year. So Chelsea, what's your initial thoughts when you think of Aja Khan? 
Oh, well, um, she was one of the first Joshi wrestlers that I was ever personally aware of when I first started getting into wrestling and kind of like Googling to try to figure out what Joshi was about. Um, she is very striking. And um, one of my one of my biggest, strongest impressions of her is that when I watched stuff from her in the early part of her career when she was just starting to develop the Aja Kong character. And then I went and I watched a match from, I think it was like 2017 at the time when I was like really looking into her closely, or maybe 2016. I was kind of surprised at how little had changed about her character. Like, I mean, there are differences, but they're more subtle because she, she figured out what works for her and she has been so consistent. <laughs> um, <laughs> she is someone who I think doesn't get enough credit for how innovative she's been. Um, and I also, unfortunately, I think she kind of sometimes gets lost, even though like a lot of, a lot of wrestling fans talk about her as like, you know, she has this legendary status, which she does. Absolutely. Um, I think she gets lost in the like best in the world conversation because she's not the type of wrestler that a lot of wrestling fans gravitate towards and what they're looking for. Like she doesn't have the skinny, pretty body type. And she, um, I don't know. I feel like the, it's so much easier for a lot of people to appreciate the people that Aja Kong beats the crap out of <laughs> because, you know, you want to root for the underdog. And yeah. a lot of people look like an underdog when they're facing Aja Kong, whether that's normally the role that they play or not. Um, but I, I think she, she deserves more credit for, um, all the things that she did for, um, all the, all the amazing matches that she had that ended up contributing to, you know, I mean, like, would you have Minami Toyota in the best in the world conversation without those matches with Aja Kong? Um, and I mean, and Minami's not the only one either. She had incredible matches with a lot of those women who get talked about more. So um, I'm happy we're doing an episode on her. I think she's a really interesting and unique figure. Yeah, I mean, she's, I mean, you can also talk about Akira Hokuto in that conversation as well. How does yeah. Akira Hokuto have the legend that she has without Aja Kong? Mm. Yeah. There's, there's some big, big, big money matches that happen because of Akira Hokuto and Aja Kong. In fact, the biggest money match of all time in women's wrestling up until this year um, mm. happens between Aja Kong and Akira Hokuto. But we will get to that in time. Uh, but speaking of Hikura, Hik Akira Hokuto, in 1986, the AJW Dojo had a purple patch, shall we say, for the last time for about two years. And Hikira Hokuto, Aja Kong, uh, Megumi Kudo, uh, uh, Combat Toyota, we're all part of the AJW's dojo class for that year, as well as uh, Bison Kimura and Ma, uh, Manami Suzuki. And this incredible class of professional wrestlers are let loose onto the Joshi scene in 1986. And it's surprising how quickly they make trash in. And Aja Kong is already starting to stand out because she's wearing the standard black swimsuit of Gokaki Dome. Uh, rookies that they had to wear, which was, you know, it was still like the standard swimsuit. Hers is black. <laughs> she's wearing regular wrestling boots, but she's got an afro cut into a mohawk, and she's about sixteen years old. She, yeah, she. Uh, it's so weird when you see 
um, pictures of her from that time or watch video of her from that time because, I mean, she's not Aja Kong yet, but um, <laughs> she does not look like she fits in with what they were asking her to do. She very much looks uncomfortable and unsure of herself, which is not how you're used to seeing her at all. No, I and mean, it's just, it's... Uh, she, I mean, she's. I mean, she has a good run in this particular time period. She gets the Japanese tag team title with, uh, well, she's known then. It's um, trying to find the Nobuko Kimura before she becomes Bison Kimura, and that's in 1988. And she's she has the AJW title, which was the top title for rookies in 1989. But she doesn't really find a feat as a st- drawing star until around about 1990 with the retirement of Don Matsumoto. And uh, Bull Nakano is kind of thrust into the limelight. She wins the vacant WWA championship when the Crush Girls retire. She's the one carrying the company. And Aja Kong is kind of cast as her protege. And in the storyline, this doesn't fit well with Aja. And that first major series of her career with Bull Nakano kind of sets the tone of what she's going to do, doesn't it? It sure does. Um, I I've seen some of those matches and Bull Nakano is someone who comes across as like effortlessly has that cool it girl thing like even when she's doing the the giant spiky hair and the makeup and trying to make herself sort of um more grotesque and fearsome she still like got that like effortlessly chill vibe of like um I don't know, like a total self-acceptance, maybe? Like Aja Kong does not have that vibe. <laughs> um she seems uh she seems like she feels a lot of turmoil in this period over her relationship to the crowd and over um possibly her relationship to Bull Nakano. Um it's not really clear what their to me what their personal dynamic was, but I wouldn't be surprised if there was some tension there. Yeah, I think, you know. Bull's the the biggest dog in the yard, isn't she? Quite literally, she's the biggest dog yeah. in the yard. Um, and she's waited seven years for this moment to be hers, and she sees this woman coming up on her heels who's got the size, got the presence, got the look, got everything she had back in 1983 when she started, and she sees the future, I guess. And that's understandable in uh, a storyline mm-hmm. sense, why there would be tension between the two. But I think you're right. I think there was genuine tension in the backstage area because by this time, AJW is one of the biggest drawing companies in Japan. Uh, the Crush Girls have set the standard so high. Uh, Jaguar Yokota has set the standard for a WWA champion to be so high. And then Linus Asuka and Chigasu Nagayo have set it at another level, uh, not as quite as good an in-ring level, but as a hysteria level, as a drawing card level, you know, there's an oh, awful yeah, lot to yeah. live up to there, you know. And AJW in that particular time period is this crucible, this cooker, pressure cooker of who's going to be the breakout star next. And you've got so many great wrestlers who could be that breakout star. But Aja Kong is probably. I was going to one... say the amazing thing is just like how many of them kind of turned out to be, even if they weren't recognized in their time. Like how many of those women are legends now? God. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, and you look at that class of '86 as well. Like Sukumita was in. Oh no, excuse me, excuse me uh, Sukumita and uh, Takoko Inoue were a class of '87. But you know, th- it, it's there's so many in that two-year time period. This 
13 or 14 wrestlers that you could class in the top 20 wrestlers of all time. Not just female wrestlers, the top 20 wrestlers of all time. You know, LCO arguably, yep. LCO arguably the best women's tag team ever and possibly the best tag team ever. And that's a big statement because people will go, Dudleys and Road Warriors and stuff, but I've seen the LCO do amazing things. <laughs> so, you know, it's, um, it's a strange time period because you've got so much talent bubbling under, but even like looking at it from a distance, when I watch those AJW cards from like 1990 to 92, there seems to be, there isn't the momentum there was in the late 80s with the Crush Girls and Jumping Bomb Angels and Gokaki Dome and mm. those kind of matches. Does that make sense? Yeah, I can I can kind of see that. It's it's harder for me to get a vibe of of um, how the audience has felt about things, but I I can sort of agree that maybe um, you know when something first gets created and it's like the newest, most innovative thing, and then people get used to it, they probably appreciate it less. Yeah, I think I think it's it's this time where kind of AJW starts looking for its new audience. And I think it realizes that it's not going to be teenage girls. It's going to be like the same fans mm. that are going to go see New Japan and UWFI and All Japan. And they've got to figure out how to appeal to those fans to fill the arenas. Because there's a definite, there's a difference in tone of the audience in this time period as well. The, the audience gets more I mean, mature. I would argue, I would argue some of that is a choice, though. I mean, mm. I don't necessarily know that that's just like them reacting to the cultural shift i i would argue that the way that they marketed a lot of the women who worked for them around this time was intentionally trying to attract a male audience yeah certainly yes i can agree with that i think it's partly that but also i think as the wrestling standard rose because you only had in the late 80s dump matsumoto versus chigasu nagayo was exciting but it wasn't a wrestling classic but Lioness Asuka versus yeah. Jaguar Yakota was a wrestling classic, but they only had two people who could do it. Whereas you get to 1990, mm. Paul can brawl, which is one of the best mat wrestlers you've ever seen. Aju Khan can brawl, yeah. but she's one of the best mat wrestlers and, and submission style wrestlers you'll ever see. Toyo, Manami Toyota, Kiro mm. all of these great purebred professional wrestlers are there as well. So I think they understand that if we shift it to a wrestling style, with a strong story behind it, we're going to attract these 18 to 30-year-old males, which is the holy grail of any wrestling organization. I mean, it's it's what the men who own those wrestling companies think of as the holy grail of any wrestling. I oh, mean. yeah. I'm not saying... <laughs> you're limiting I, I, know what you, I know what you mean, James. I just yeah. feel like it's important to draw that distinction because oh, yeah. of the way that people... like. A lot of podcasts that talk about this time period aren't going to frame it that way. And I, I don't know. It seems important to me to point out. No, no, I think you're right. I think it's the holy grail of wrestling promoters at the time. Mm. It was the same demographic that Sushi Nisa was after with MFMW and the same demographic Paul Heyman was after with ECW. And to a lesser extent, the same demographic Vince McMahon was after with the Attitude Era. But... Uh, and WCW in the late 90s, early 2000s after that same kind of... But it doesn't necessarily mean that's the be-all and end-all of what a wrestling audience should be. The biggest numbers for WWE yep, yep. were when they put, in the 80s, when they went to a family-friendly product and appealed to everybody. 
So and hey, their most popular person in the entire company now, who supposedly makes them the most money in merch sales, is a woman. So yeah, so it's not <laughs> it's not as cut and dried as people think it is. You know, nope. no, it's not. Anywho, <laughs> getting back to Asia, I mean, Asia goes through this period in this particular time period of first of all, obviously teaming with Bull Nakano, and then eventually breaking away from Gokaku Dome to form Jungle Jack with Bison Kimura, a tag team and a faction that develops into this big rivalry and feud with Bull Nakano, which leads to a cage match at Yokohama Arena, which is absolutely thrilling, and with uh, both factions at ringside, including a young Medusa Miscelli before she goes to the WWE. Um, I believe she was one of Vajra Kong's followers. It, is, it was a fascinating watch, um, but there's some big, big matches in this time period between 91 and 92. Bison Kimura and uh, Aja Kong versus Grizzly Iwamoto and Bull Nakano, which is the best no-sell I've ever seen, ever. Have you seen that match? I don't think so. There's a point in the match, it's a straight-up tag match, and it degenerates into a brawl because it's them four. And Bull Nakano stands in the middle of the ring because... She's caught dead to rights with Bison Kimura and Aja Kong have both got um, Singapore canes, kendo sticks. And they start swinging, at, they start swinging at Bull Nakano and she just stands there and smiles. Ooh, what a badass. <laughs> yeah, and she just, and they literally swing until their arms drop because they can't swing anymore. And she just takes it. And it's like, this kind of gave you a deeper insight as to what this feud was about because it wasn't just about making money for all Japan pro wrestling. It was about Bull Nakano asserting her dominance on this particular locker room as I'm the star. That's where I deserve to be. And this is why I am the star. And no matter what you do to me, it'll be fine because I'll still be the star. Now, you know, there is, there is a bunch of politics. It looked like great TV and it looks like a great moment in a wrestling match. But I can imagine it was heartbreaking for Bison Kimura and Aja Kong to have to do that, um, whether it was intentional or not. But it is a beautiful moment in professional wrestling. I, I mean, I think one of the interesting things to consider, too, is that um, Aja Kong always wanted to be a star, but she did not want to be a heel when she first no. started out. That was something that was sort of forced on her. Um, because, uh, and they, I mean, they even explicitly told her this, she said many times, because she was half black, they felt she would never be accepted by the audience if she tried to be a babyface. So, um, I, I, I'm sure it's hard for her to, or probably was at that time, to hand that sort of, um, that status to somebody else, especially... I would guess probably a woman who um, has a lot of the like, I don't know, maybe more like conventionally pretty characteristics that uh, the bosses were looking for and that were more marketable. Yeah. Um, that's, I am probably projecting a little bit when I try to interpret that, but that is, that is my gut feel about a lot of what I've seen of her from this time period. Yeah. I think, I think as well, I mean, there were other things working, in favor of Bull, like she worked very hard to make her physical presence more intimidating and she understood locker room politics because she'd been around longer than anybody else. You know, um, she understood it very, very well. 
I mean, and she was also forward thinking in certain respects. I mean, she was also experimenting with steroids at this particular time, which isn't the safest thing in the world to do. And she kind of well, went I mean, through... everybody, everybody was <laughs> at that time, yeah. right? Yeah, but she she went through the AJW doctor, and the AJW doctor was like, well, we, we don't know, we don't ever tried it before, and you know, in women's wrestling, because we've never had anyone that big dump just eight more. You know, that's all she needed to do was be big. And but Nakano was kind of like experimented with it in that way, and one of the reasons why she looks so slim now is because it wasn't actual. Uh, you know, it, her body was enhanced somewhat. It wasn't, you know, just weight. It wasn't put... her natural physical body mm. type. She was doing stuff to put that weight on. Yeah, in the same way the Dynamite Kid was doing the same thing at the same time, um, mm. without so much disastrous results for Bull Nakano, thankfully. So there were all sorts of things going on in that particular locker room to cope with that pressure cooker of who, how do you get to the top? And Naji Kong's negotiation of it is very different to the others. The big blow-off match in that feud with Bull and Aja was Bison Kimura and Aja Kong versus uh, versus Kiyoka Inoue and Bull Nakano. Kiyoka Inoue, the happy-go-lucky babyface of all babyfaces, who was AJW champion at the time, uh, come to the ring to, to jump by Van Halen, or Panama by Van Halen. <laughs> <laughs> it's like watching her tag with Bull Nakano, who's a babyface, but really hasn't changed that much since she was tagging with Dump Matsumoto two years before. And mm. they have this knockdown, drag out cage match, which ends with Aja Kong and Bison Kimura getting their head shaved because it was a Kimikeri death match. And for me, one thing that watching that match is what sets up Aja Kong as a big draw for me is up until that point, she's been the whiny one. She's been the one that's, it's not fair. I don't get my opportunity because you're in the way. But she takes her head shaving with a plum. She moans about it, but she sits there and she takes it, and all of a sudden, she's mm. in the water. Bison Kimura, her tag partner, by contrast, cries and they have to carry her back to the ring, and she screams the house down while they shave her head. But Aja is the stoic one. There is a... You have an ability to cheer for her now. She has made herself a bigger star in that particular moment. Mm. And I think as well, Bison helped her by being the whiny one who wouldn't do it. That makes Arge's character much more a positive in that particular context. It sort of makes you wonder how much of those reactions were planned specifically beforehand. Yeah. I mean, obviously I, the finish of the match was, but did yeah. they talk about the fact that they were going to do that? Or was that just what happened? So I, and it, it moved awfully quickly. If you watch that match now, it moves awfully quickly for it to be kind of planned and i think as well we're kind of used to everything being so staged now we can kind of yeah, tell that's true. you know whereas back then if they had thought about it that day they must have kind of thought about it to an extent because the whole point is to get Arja over to get a heat back in the old parlance of pro wrestling you know if a heel loses they have to do something to get their heat back you have to have a reason to hate them if they just lose they're just losers and you've got no reason to hate them anymore so she's right. lost so she has to have a reason to cause a reaction. Now, the reaction she gets isn't that she's hated. It's that there's a grudging respect about her now. But that's, mm. that's something that sets up Jungle Jack, because the next job for them is to go after the WWA Tag Team Champions Championships, and they have this big run that sets Jungle Jack and Aja Kong up to be the next challenge to Bull Nakano in the next 12 months. 
Wasn't she also, didn't she have the top company individual title in the early 90s? Like 93 or 94, something like that? Yeah, it was 92 to 94 after the success of Jungle Jack. There's a, there's a long feud between Jungle Jack and Minami Toyota who has several different partners to try and take the tag team titles off of Jungle Jack and eventually succeeds with uh, Toshio Yamada. And then the story, the, the tag team story goes between Yamada and Toyota and they have the, the breathtaking series with Dynamite Kansai and Miami Ozaki. But Aja then sets her sights on Bulnakano. She set herself up as a singles wrestler. And this is where the Aja come, the the legend we know, the, the shiny pants, the silk pants, the Aja motif, the Aja makeup, the kick pads. That Aja is really comes to the fore in this particular case. And she takes the title off of Bulnakano in 92. And then she goes on an incredible 18-month run as champion and has great defenses against all of the women in AJW. And this is when AJW kind of like starts to reach its peak as Minami Toyota is built in the same way Aja was in the tag team division as being the next big thing. And this is really like what mm. Japanese did really well was use tag teams to create big stars in a way that American wrestling didn't really do for another five or six years or so. But Aja's the champion and everyone's coming after Aja. Um, and, you know, look at the challenges she's got. She's got Akira Hokuto, who challenges her in 94. Uh, she's got Nami Toyota, who's a constant threat to her title, Kyoko Inoue, all of these women. And these are the matches that kind of like build the Joshi legend of how great Joshi is. And she's the cornerstone of it. She's the, the number one lead, lead star of the company in this time period. She defined a lot of what the art form looks like. Um, in that time period, but also for bigger-bodied women. There are so many women, I think of now, who have learned explicitly from the stuff that she did in this time period. Um, she, was, she, was so, uh, she was so creative. <laughs> yeah, she is. And, you know, watching her wrestling now from that time period, she doesn't, she doesn't change much, like you said. The formula's there. It's kind of like yeah. twi twisted a little bit, but what she's been doing since 1993 is kind of what you get to see with Aja Kong. And it's also remarkable how one other wrestler, who's sadly no longer with us, um, Leon Vader White, picked up from that particular monster heel, because a lot of the things that Vader did, Aja Kong did first. Huh. I never really thought about that, but that makes perfect sense now that you've said it um i was also thinking uh i feel like i see a little bit of stuff that um kevin owens has borrowed whether consciously or not i mean the mm. package pile driver she created that and i mean there's some elements of like how do you use your bigger body type to make yourself more intimidating that um i just i think she was the first one to do a lot of what she did yeah it's uh, yeah it's i think she had the right people to do it with as well because in that time period there was more variety of challenges going to going after her titles i mean if you look at jagu yukota she was a smaller wrestler but she was always going up against monster ripper and you know even linus asuka was a lot bigger than she was so yeah. whereas i just got this different aesthetic she's a heel like dun matsumoto but dun couldn't do what aji kong does 
and Borna Kano was a baby face by the time she gets to the championship. So Aja's a proper heel. She's got to do what Monster Ripper did, but she's got a lot more tools to do it with. And she's got to race a lot more different opposition who've been trained differently because you're in this big uh, cross-pollination period where LLPW and AJW and um, JWP and FMW are all working together. So, you know, you've got that big match with Dynamite Kansai, which is essentially like versus like. Dynamite Kansai is the big monster of JWP and Aja is the big monster of uh, AGW. And th- there's a matchup you you don't get to see very often, you know, the two <laughs> true aces who are similar to each other uh, from different companies. They, they, that was a big match. The match with Akira Hokuto, where Akira blew out her knee a couple of nights before, as is the will of Akira Hokuto, and refused to have a championship match with Aja because it would ruin the prestige of the championship. Whew. <laughs> That's a slap in the face. Yes, because Akira, as you said, once said Akira Hokuto is quite close to a crazy person. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. I, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking about today when in preparation for this podcast about how you have some of the same size dynamics with Akira Hokuto and Aja Kong that you do with a lot of Aja Kong's other famous opponents. But is it me or is there a lot more aggression and also a lot less personal tension. Yeah. If their dynamic feels very friendly to me, even when they're quite literally kicking the shit out of each other. I think, yeah, because you look at that match in particular, when she, when Akira Hokuto picks up the microphone, she kind of smiles at her and goes, Aja. yeah, she's, she doesn't even like, you know, she's not dead. She's not the dead serious Akira, Akira Hokuto that you've seen in the past. She just goes, Aja, I can't do this. This isn't good for the for the for the championship or the company. We have to we have to postpone this. We'll do this some other time. You know, I'll just have a great I'll just have a great wrestling match with you, and then proceeds to have like, you know, a match that would blow anything away that's on Raw. <laughs> oh <laughs> with, yeah, yeah, with with one knee, you know, and I, it's that I think that's as well because they were both class of eighty six, and you look at the wrestlers in that class of eighty six, Bison Kimura. And Aja Khan were best friends. Combat Toyota, uh, Megumi Kudo. Um, I'm trying to remember the other woman from FMW, but I can't remember her name either. But they were really close friends Sorry. as well. And close yeah. friends, they were close friends with Bison Kimura. And when Bison Kimura comes out of retirement, she goes to FMW. She doesn't go back to AJW. You know, mm. she has a six months run in FMW because her friends are there and she never got a chance to wrestle her friends for a big company. You know, and Aja goes and spends some time in FMW to help help them out. You know, there there are they are they're a close knit group that class of eighty six. In fact, I think there's probably closer knit than the class of eighty seven because there's less tension among them. They're all a bit oh, they're all one year older, and the stakes aren't quite so high for them because they know they'll mm. get them there. There's this level of maturity to the class of eighty six that the class of eighty seven don't really get a chance to have. I don't think. I could see that. I feel um, like I feel like the, the class of '86. They're sort of building the thing that everybody else builds on later, and yeah. there's not. There's probably not as much pressure. No, you know, I, yeah. I think you know. I, I I think the ones that received the pressure were Combat and Magumo, and they left or were fired. Whereas you know, Azure and Akira, it's like here's the reins of the biggest women's wrestling company in the world. 
and they're yeah, that's okay. We can do this. We know what we're doing. We'll be fine. You know, there's a lot less. There seems to be a lot less urgency about what they do. You can see Minami Toyota is in a hurry to be a star in everything she does, and goddamn, she deserves it. And she is the greatest wrestler that ever lived. But there is a sense of purpose about the class of '86 that's much more stoic. There's much more Clint Eastwood, John Wayne kind of deal about them. You know what I mean? There's, <laughs> yeah. Those those sociopathic characters. There's much more of that about them than than the Toyotas and the Tomatas and the Exuta uh, meters of this world. Not that I love those guys, all of them, but there is a certain pace and deliberateness that Aja and Akira and Bison Kimura have. Yeah. Um, and then the next big food for Aja, of course, is Manami Toyota. And it starts at yeah. um, the Tokyo Dome, a big egg universe, where they have the one main event match that was in the opening round. Well, actually, to be fair, all those opening rounds in the V-Top tournament were main event matches anywhere in the world. But um, theirs was the big draw. <laughs> Minami Probably Toyota one of the greatest women's wrestling matches of all time. Probably one of the greatest wrestling matches of all time. Certainly one yeah. of my favorites. Uh, 25 minutes of just utter blistering pace. Professional wrestling that you just don't see anywhere anymore because people can't wrestle this well. <laughs> that's not fair and that's not true. But, you know, that standard of storytelling, the speed that they were going at, and Aja starting to build the blocks for Manami Toyota to defeat her. She tells the story of Manami getting so close and so close mm -hmm. and so close, but not quite pulling it off. And Manami Toyota getting up at the end and just looking down on Aja Kong and, and like, I've got your number. I know I can beat you. It's just a matter of time. That's, that's the story of that match. You know, Manami Toyota, the perfect uh, Japanese flying angel, doing the reckless thing, knowing she has to go that extra yard. The big press off the top rope to the floor through a table. That's not Manami Toyota's usual style. She wants to beat you with grace and passion, not with violence, but she knows she has to go one step further to defeat Ajikong. And that's an incredible professional wrestling story. Without the back knowledge, if you just watch that match, it's astounding with the knowledge of there's Minami Toyota who's built this career with one thing in mind, which is winning the AJW title, there's a whole different thing there, isn't there? Oh, for sure. And I mean, Aja in that match too. Like, Minami looks legitimately terrified when she gets into the ring yeah. before they start. And I mean, I'm sure some of that was the crowd, but I also think some of it is just the knowledge of what Aja is about to put her through. Um, yeah. And Aja is just, she is so determined and it is, it is just really, really special. Um, she has this way of throwing her body at Manami Toyota in this way that's sort of, it's not just like, I will crush you. It's like, I am not going to let you deny me. Fuck you. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, and to some extent, to some extent, she has that quality in rivalries with other wrestlers but i feel like with minami toyota it's almost like she's beating up someone who is the like perfect archetype of everything she's been told she's not her whole life and it is just the 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 tension between the two of them is so thick you could cut it with a knife <laughs> and it's it's just it makes for such 
beautiful storytelling. Um, and I almost want to say effortless storytelling because it feels like they don't have to try to construct that energy. It's just, it is always there. It is, yeah. it is really, really special. Yeah. And you get through the tournament and then the next, the final match is Akira Hokuto. And it's like Hokuto's last match. It's theoretically her retirement match. And they've, they've, been, <laughs> they've been theoretically. It's, it's Japanese women's wrestling. She went to CMLL and got married and divorced him. <laughs> anyway, but going back to the point that, you know, supposedly Hokuto's retirement match. And it's just so breathlessly good. And Hokuto has to use, well, as an echo of their match that we talked about before, Aja does her knee in early in the match. A little bit to protect Aja because obviously losing to a retiring wrestling one and you're the champion doesn't isn't the strongest of booking um but equally yeah. they go through that match and if it's not a real if it is a real injury then Aja's insane because she sells it perfectly and if it is and if it is a real injury she's the one of the toughest people you've ever seen in your life and Hokuto drags her through this match kicking and screaming through this match and ends it with three northern light bombs to put her away and take the egg dome title and Aja's reaction when she comes to is to throw the championship belt at Kokoto, saying, I cannot be the champion anymore because I couldn't beat you. And it, you realize how, like, this means so much to them. Yes, it is a predetermined finish, but that big red belt meant more to Aja Kong than just a prop in a wrestling match. There was something about what she did and how she did it and the pride that she had. And the way she said, says those words, I can't understand the words she's saying, but I know she's upset that she cannot fulfill her yeah. destiny the way she's supposed to do. This is not what she needed to be doing. She didn't need to lose this match. She needed, she needed to be the best in the industry. And the way that sets Hokuto up in that particular moment is just outstanding. Mm. Well said. Thank you. I appreciate that. I <laughs> know. <laughs> Then you, they obviously Toyota eventually beats Aja Kong for the title in another outstanding match. But the next real phase of her career is actually in North America. And Alunda Blaze, or formerly Medusa Maselli, who's the WWF Women's Champion, has kind of done her thing with uh, Bull Nakano, who uh, got sent home because she was doing cocaine. Um, <laughs> uh, and they're looking for another challenger, and it ends up being Aja Kong. Um, and a load of the AJW girls go to. North America for TV tape in Kyoto Winaway is over there. Aja goes over and they set up this feud between Aja and Alunda Blaze. And it it's good, but I don't think they quite understood what they were trying that the WWF was understood what women's wrestling was supposed to look like from what they were supposed to be doing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um it's very much something that is too too stiff and too genuinely competitive and too yeah. sincere for the vision of what women's wrestling was supposed to be like for WWE at or WWF at that time and I would argue still. <laughs> yeah, it was supposed to be a big cartoon. That's what it's supposed to be. Women wrestling, not just women's wrestling, but wrestling in general in WWF in nineteen ninety seven, nineteen ninety six, we're still talking pre attitude era. There is no sense of realism. We're still talking Sparky Plug and Doink the Clown. Um, and Bob Holly and Matt Bourne were great wrestlers. But it's not wrestling, is it? It's a cartoon of what wrestling should be. It's almost a pastiche of what wrestling should be. 
and you see Isaac yeah. swinging a swinging a spinning back fist into Alundra Blaze's face and not missing by much. <laughs> no, <laughs> you know it's 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 something else, and it's just it looks otherworldly in this. You know, I, if I remember correctly, if you you can find the match on YouTube, and I think Bruce Pritchard is selling T-shirts literally by ringside before the match in like in one of those old style promos they did back then about buying your merch from WWF magazine or WWF, yeah, it would be WWF magazine back then. Um, and it just looks so otherworldly to see Aja Kong in this environment and just destroying people because that's what Aja Kong does, you know, and it didn't really take off the way the Bull Meccano, uh, Alundra Blaze feud did, did it? No, um, I mean, and it's not, it's not surprising. Um, they, I, the least surprising fact about women's wrestling, maybe that Vince McMahon didn't understand Aja Kong and didn't understand what she had to offer. Um, I think she was always too serious and too genuine and also not the right uh, physical body type for what they wanted to do. And also, I mean, didn't they give up? on women's wrestling altogether not too long after this? Wasn't it basically effectively not a part of the product for almost a decade? Yeah, they, I think they essentially killed the town with this. I mean, there was there was Sable and there was the diva kind of, the the the, the pre-diva generation, Jackie and, and Sable and those people that came along next, but it wasn't as serious a wrestling division I mean, Jackie's like a serious professional wrestler, but, you know, she was having to carry the division, glue it together, as was Luna Vachon and several people. But it wasn't up to this particular standard of just badass wrestling. It was more story-orientated, you know, that that was kind of what Vince McMahon's vision of what women in wrestling should be at the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know. Because people forget, like, Sable was a bigger star than her husband, who was Mark Merrow <laughs> at the time. You know, she was, she ended up being a bigger star than an actual male wrestler, and mainly because of the way Vince McMahon wanted to present her as a, well, let's be blunt, large-breasted, good-looking woman. And that was basically what got her where she was. She wasn't a great wrestler, and I think she'd be the first to admit that. But that's the way Vince McMahon wanted to perceive the championship, and Aja Kong certainly wouldn't fit into that particular I role. I mean, he wanted... He wanted a lot of the women who are a part of the product at this time to basically be Playboy cover models who sort of wrestled and who were always supposed to be written as like second fiddle to a man or were involved in men's storylines. And um, I uh, it would have been interesting if Aja had uh, stuck around longer than she did to see how she handled that. But um, (laughs) I'm not sad for her that that didn't happen because I think she would have been miserable. Yes. And. Instead, she went back home to Japan. She finished out with all Japan women because she was no longer champion, kind of saw the writing on the wall, and started a new promotion with Rossi Yagawa called Hyper Visual Fighting ASEAN. Now, Rossi Yagawa was a junior promoter in AJW. He left the company to start ASEAN, which was going to be a new vision of what Joshi could be. And it was still based on the traditional values. It came around about a year after Gaia, uh, started and the idea behind the company was to present in a much more sports orientated manner professional wrestling like exactly the opposite of Vince McMahon's kind of vision for what pro wrestling should be the women involved from the training dojo point of view would actually also work with battle arts the shoot promotion it was much more mat wrestling based it was much more 
aggressive. It was much more of a straight-up wrestling promotion in the style of the UWF. And it produced some incredible professional wrestling. Have you watched watched much Arceon, Chelsea? Because this is this is my kind of thing. If there was a pure wrestling promotion <laughs> that I would actually ever watch ever again, if I could only watch one wrestling promotion ever, it would be Arceon because it was perfect professional wrestling as far as I was concerned. I can totally see how it's exactly your aesthetic. Um, I have watched, I think, probably maybe two or three matches, um, two of which were in preparation for this podcast. And mm. The thing that I find interesting about Aja in this specifically is that I feel like she seems so much less angry during this time, even though she's still um, still being, you know, her very scary heelish character. She seems so much more relaxed. <laughs> and <Yes. laughs> it was actually kind of nice to see that relief after watching some of the stuff from her early career and seeing all the things she put her body through. Um, yeah. and I, I'm, some of that might just be that she had some, I'm assuming creative control over what she was doing, probably in ways that she didn't when she was working for AJW and WWF. Um, but I think it might also just be that she seems more comfortable with herself and her place there because it's been established, you know, yeah. she, she doesn't have to fight as hard anymore. And I think consequently, she seems like she's having more fun in a lot of what she does there. Yeah, I, I would completely agree with that. She has control of what she's doing. She's booking. She's helping train these youngsters. She has a handle on the situation. She reinvents herself as a matriarchal figure in the same way that Chigasona Gaio does in Gaia at the same time. You know, she is quite clearly beloved in that locker room and the girls that wrestle in that locker room will follow her to the ends of the earth, even if they're like, you know, um, not from the AJW tradition, like Gammy's from the LLPW tradition, but she kind of like becomes this you know, key figure in 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 Arcyon. And there is faction war in Arcyon, but they all kind of like rally behind Aja. Even the factions that don't agree with Aja, they kind of rally behind her when they need her. Mm. And she becomes this bigger matriarchal figure because she's the lead star of Arceon. She is Arce Queen of Arceon a couple of times in the early in the company as they're trying to establish the company. But she quickly passes the torch to other people to encourage, you know, more draws. Yeah. You know, this is this There's is the a key lot thing. of warmth there too. Yeah. Right? I mean like yeah. she seems like she has a lot of affection for her students. And far from having that dynamic that um I compare it to in my head, I compare it to Nanai's role in early stardom. Yeah. Um, where Nanai really held on to that title for a very long time, even though it was clear that Io was ready. And yeah. Aja Kong, even though I think of her as being someone who has had to bulldoze her way through and work so hard to establish herself, it's clear that she has a lot of compassion for other people who are now in that position and is willing to do kind of the Chris Jericho thing of like, let me help the youngins along and shepherd them towards this thing. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's her, she's the one that has a blistering match with Aquino that puts her on the map. Mm. You know, there's the, uh, Aoki Hamada, who's the daughter of Gran Hamada, who was such a hot property 
Arsion actually filmed her high school graduation. They knew she was going to be that good. She had already started training before she left school. And she wanted to graduate high school. It's a, a fairly sensible choice, given what her father's done for a living. You know, and she was the hot property. She was going to be the star. And Aja Kong bends over backwards. Now, I'm not knocking Aoki Yamada when mm -hmm. I say this, because I think Aoki Yamada, at 18 years old, to the age of 20 years old, was as good a wrestler as ever walked the face of God's earth. She was Manami Toyota, Ric Flair, Luthez levels of good in that purple pact where she was Queen of Arsion and Tag Team Champions at the same time. She was absolutely outstanding. But a lot of that comes from Aja Kong and the help Aja Kong gave her in getting over. And yeah. when, when they do sign in big stars, they sign the LCO in, I think it's 98, and it isn't one of the rookies that takes the beating to get the LC over, LCO over. Aja Kong has a handicap match with them, and they beat the hell out of her. Uh, in a working style, but they beat the hell out of her. She's the one that takes the fall. So Hamada and Akino look good in the match for the AJ, for the Queen of Arsion Tag Team Championships. You know, it's, it's very clever, and she does so much giving in this time period to get these people over. Yeah, I, I think of her now, too, being someone who can be, you know, very, very scary in the ring, but also comes across as having, like, a sense of humor and being such a warm and generous <laughs> performer. Like, I, I think of all those um, times when she's done photo shoots or taken selfies with people before and after matches, and, you know, she'll have her makeup kind of smeared on her face, and the other person's, like, covered in sweat and has sometimes a black eye, and they're both just beaming at the camera, you know, and Aja has that, like, big dimpled smile of, like, yeah, we did that, it was fun. <laughs> I um I I definitely get that vibe from her. I, I tried, I actually tried really hard um for this podcast to find video of her in the dojo training her students. And I only found a tiny little bit from a small documentary segment that I think the BBC may have done a few years ago about her. Yeah. Um I, you, you know, you get like 15 seconds of her working with two girls in the ring, but it's clear that um, she really values her position as someone who has the opportunity to teach people. And also that she just has a lot of respect for the women that she works with, who she um, kicks the crap out of. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, I, you know, it's funny because, like, I watch some of that stuff and I'm like, you know, your character scares the crap out of me sometimes. But I also sort of get this vibe that maybe I would like her personally. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, she, I, she sort of comes across as like a, a, a really nice person, which is not a thing that you associate with the character that she plays. No, and I think as well in this Arsian like, day, she was still this big badass, but she became this much beloved figure as a baby face. Perhaps what she really wanted to be all along, as we talked about before, because the fans just respected her so much. And because it yeah. was more realistic presentation you can get behind somebody who is realistically tough and realistically a good storyteller in that particular environment as well yeah you know and she was the protector she protected the rookies she protected the people she needed to protect and at the same time she's wrestling in gaia and she's aaaw champion in 1999 and she's kind of building a legacy as a heel there it's really kind of odd time period for joshi because you had these big companies were like, Arsene was a pretty big company, and Guy was a very big company. 
and she's kind of like wrestling as lead heel for AAA-W, for Gaia and is AAAW champion. And she heads into this feud with a young Mako Satomura. And that feud makes Mako, just as she's making all these people in Arceon. Now, around about, I think it's 98, late 98, she falls out with um, Rossi Agawa and leaves Arceon. And it's your M- M- uh, Yoshida M- Mikaido takes over um as the lead booker and then uh linus Asuka does after that linus Asuka takes over as lead booker and yoshida becomes the star of the company and kind of hamada gets blackballed out of the company so does akino they end up in gaia there's big political plays um over the fallout and it's kind of like the death knell for arcyon but arcyon is kind of like the sandbox for everything rossi guy was done with stardom you know, he goes on to fight. I was going to say, it feels very much like the template for stardom in what little yeah. I've seen. But. I mean, he had JD Star as a company in between times, but JD Star kind of relied too heavily on the female aesthetic. You know, Aoki Kamada was brilliant and an amazing wrestler who had the advantage of looking really good in a bikini. So they sold lots of posters and they kind of like went too far in that direction with JD Star, though they had great wrestlers. Um, uh as well but it, it was difficult for them to get traction because none of the other companies wanted to work with them and that's really where you wanted to to go um mm. the the biggest name to come out of jd star really two names were yoshiko who ended up being a cornerstone in stardom and sumi sakai obviously is the cornerstone of the women of honors wrestling division um yeah. and she she did really well wrestling up against people from AJW. But yeah, definitely what Rossi did with Nana Takahashi and the opening days of stardom is very much based on Arcyon. But they brought the realism back because Fuka, the other owner, the other director of stardom, was a former kickboxer and she believed in realism. And that brought the edge back that you didn't really get in JD Star. Um, but yeah, Arcean is really well worth watching if you want to go find and see it, especially those early days with Arju booking the wrestling she wants to book, shoot-based pro wrestling. Mm. Let's, let's move on to her days in Gaia, because in Gaia, like I said, she was AAW champion, and this young whippersnapper called Mako Satomura was <laughs> at the heels for the championship, and in a three-year feud on and off, Satomura finally unseated Aja Kong, in an ungodly match in 2002 for the AAW Championship. And it made Mako Satomura. And they become firm friends that, you know, still 17 years later, they are still best mates in the professional wrestling industry. <laughs> but they knocked seven bells of shit out of one another so many times in, a, in Gaia in the early 2000s. But it really kind of set the tone for what Mako Satomura's career was going to be about. And Aja Kong was a big part of that. I I think of um, a lot of, there are a lot of parallels there for me between their two careers, because I think of Mako as someone who um, has this, you know, like her in-ring character is very violent and very, very, very tough and very Mm. strong. And she comes across as like such a, a warm, generous, sweet person in real life. And it's a little jarring sometimes when you see 
actual interviews of her or video of her just kind of like being herself and you juxtapose it with this incredibly determined fierce character that she plays in the ring um and you know i mean uh, mako is is a matriarchal figure for so many people in wrestling and has that complete total legendary status even though it uh it seems like Mako was kind of like a legend almost right out the box. Like it really <laughs> didn't take her very long to ascend to that level. And it's interesting watching her matches with Aja Kong from this time period. I think I watched one of them. I don't think I saw the final one, but they very much feel like equals, even though they're competing with each other, um, yeah. which is not what I was expecting. You know, I was expecting, I was like, maybe I'm going to see Mako actually get the stuffing kicked out of her for once. And that was not what happened. It, it feels very, very even. And um, it's brutal, but also very respectful, which was really interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, I mean don't get us wrong. Mako Samura does pull out a row of chairs to hit her with at some point. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, we're, we're talking like Minoru Suzuki levels of sadism here. Um, but they're going for it, and this is the this is what you have to do. It goes back to what Toyota had to do to beat Kong. What do you prepared to do to beat the monster? You know, and Aja Kong becomes this big bad in this time period. She brings in Minami Toyota because she can't beat. I can't remember. It's one of the the Gaia regulars who's the champion, and she tries to beat her three or four times. She said, "Well, I can't beat you, but I know someone who can," and brings in Minami Toyota as a heel. And starts a faction of the old AJW hands to try and take the title away from Gaia. You know, there's interesting creative points going on in this particular time period. Um, but I think certainly the key feud for her is the is the Mako Satamura feud. And also mm-hmm. go, go again with Dynamite Kansai. She's the last champion, AAW heavyweight champion, when the company closes in 2005. And after that, she's kind of like set free. She can do whatever she wants to because the big companies are gone. AJW, her old home, closes doors in 2005. And mm. the, only, the two companies that come back to replace them are kind of like continuations of Gaia and Arceon in one sense. There's Oz Academy and there's Sendai Girls. Now, Oz Academy was a faction within Gaia um, and a lot of the Gaia staff like Carlos Amano, Mayumi Izaki, uh, Dynamite Kansai, uh, Mako Satomura do make appearances, are regulars for the company. Mako starts Sendai Girls, which is a different way of presenting professional wrestling. For those of you who don't know how Sendai Girls works, we have done talked about Sendai Girls before, but Sendai always has a core of trainees who are the Sendai Girls, the current Sendai Girls, Dash Chisako, um, Chihiro Hashimoto, um, Charlie Evans and Millie McKenzie, those are the current uh, Sendai girls. Oh, Minami, the young lass that's the, uh, the dojo, and there's the other dojo girl as well, but they're the current Sendai girls. And down the years have been obviously been different Sendai girls, but it's, it's based out of Sendai, and the wrestling is based as the hometown team versus everybody else. And as you come, a lot mm. of the time, it's everybody else. <laughs> um, <laughs> so as of late, she's kind of got this honorary. Uh, Sendai girl status because she's waits with Mako Satomura and help her out in numerous feuds down the years. Um, but she becomes this star also in uh, in Oz Academy, whereas Oz Academy becomes this kind of anti-professional wrestling organization because the regular army in Oz Academy are the bad guys. 
and the faces are the ones that have to break the rules to get past. So you've got the Oz Academy faction of Mayumi Ozaki and, and her crew, and then Aja Kong is the babyface all of a sudden, and Dynamite Kansai is the babyface. And there's the, all these very complicated dynamics that go through storytelling that started in Gaia in 1999, and suddenly somebody will say, you've betrayed me in 2003 on this date, and this happened and this happened. So now <laughs> I'm... <laughs> It's like the most layered and convoluted professional wrestling you've ever seen, but it's brilliant and it's so well put together. And as you can't become, it's also it's got that Chikara thing where like the the continuity has so it's based on way too much wrestling for you to actually be able to watch all of it. But you also don't need to to be able to have a good time because everybody doing it looks like they're having a good time. Yes, that's it, and it's it's still it goes without the 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 realms of beyond the realms of possibility of professional wrestling many times. But of Academy becomes a big draw. It's still a big draw in Yokohama. It's the biggest draw in Joshi, but it doesn't get talked about as much as Stardom because they don't do English translations. It's the most Japanese wrestling promotion in Japan, I think. Mm. And I think they believe only Japanese people will get it because it's so layered and you've got these stories that have gone back 20 years. But I think more people would appreciate it if they could watch it. I I think so too. Um, do they have a streaming service that's accessible for international fans, or do you have to use a VPN to watch it? Not really. I think you can get it for for international fans, but they tend to just like put their stuff on like the the standard streaming services that Oz Academy do. You catch most of it on Peresa Dream, and a lot of it's on TV. They do the TV model. They're still one of the companies that are still using the TV model. They'll do big shows on um, Gayora TV once a month. You know, so they're still like, or Samurai TV once a month, they're still widely publicized on television and the school still drawing big crowds. They get two or three thousand at some of their shows. That's pretty amazing. It is really. And she becomes like this, this guardian figure of these two particular companies. She doesn't wrestle for Ice Ribbon. Um, I think occasionally she has done. She certainly does not wrestle for Sir Stardom because uh, mm. of the fallout between her and Rossi Agawa years ago. But every other wrestling company in Japan, pretty much, she's got an open-door policy with them. will have work with anyone. Um, she didn't wrestle Kana, or Asuka, as she is now known. I think that was more to do with certain political things Kana had pulled in the past. And she yeah, didn't... I know Asuka has kind of a complicated relationship with a lot of the legendary figures in Joshi. Yeah, she's kind of like she's kind of a tear the tear house down character, but that isn't uh, necessarily the way you go about things in Joshi. And one of the reasons why she ended up wrestling in America as well, because she kind of burned as many bridges as she could do in, in Japan, and she had a limited work workspaces to go. Though she was still being booked by Oz Academy, and she was still being booked by Sendai Girls, and she had her own companies mm. as well. But Aja is kind of like. You know, she's still drawing big money. And then, of course, there is the big international moments. You know, the first Joshi Mania, or the only Joshi Mania tour, the first announced main event is Sarah Del Rey versus Aja Khan. You know, this, that which, which if you've got the Joshi Mania tour on DVD, those New York matches, Del Rey versus Aja Khan and Del Rey versus Yuki Amada, which is really part of that kind of similar canon, are just astounding matches, you know, and the fans really, really appreciate them because of their love of Joshi. But they came and they brought a proper Joshi show for the fans to enjoy. It's also interesting because um, Del Rey, 
talks about Manami Toyota being such an influence on her. And it's funny watching her, um, at least for me, I thought, with her uh, competing with Aja Kong in those matches because it's the it's the fullest extent you can like you can feel Manami Toyota in that match, even though she's not in yeah. that match. Like, <laughs> she's in the back watching. <laughs> right? It's very much like a fight that's sort of about the two of them, but it's also not about the two of them. It's about this other person who was this huge influence on Sarah Del Rey. And in sometimes sometimes matches like that are kind of weird. Um I don't always I don't always like them. I don't always care about how somebody feels about their hero in wrestling but um it's you know they're both still very present for it and um Aja's almost like I don't know I want to say like a little bit of irreverence in that match with Sarah Del Rey who's like working so hard working her ass off is really really fun I really enjoyed seeing the two of them and um and especially in that setting too where Aja gets her proper like um this proper setup in that space as like you know this is a legendary figure and we are blessed to have her here with us yes and as, as shikara will shikara were the only people who could do this in north america at the time yeah yeah and i really appreciate that i um i love the fact that quack is always willing to pay tribute to the influences of the past, especially when he is working with them. Um, you, yeah. you get the sense that, that Aja appreciated it too. Definitely. And, you know, you look at the things she's done in recent years, uh, her Oz Academy open weight championship match with Akira Shida in 2017 was, I'm to, maybe 2018. Yes. It'd been 2018 in 2018 was the match of the year in Oz Academy voted for by the fans. You know, Aja is nearly 50 years old and she's pulling out that quality of match now. And it was, it was an old fashioned Joshi blood feud. You know, Akira Shida actually had Aja Kong's blood on her tights for six months after that match, just to <laughs> show that she'd be in Aja Kong. <laughs> you know, I mean- that's, it's worth being proud of. <laughs> yeah, that, that, you know, she didn't wash her tights for six months just to like show, look, I beat up Aja Khan. You know, that, and that's kind of like that, that givingness, that sense of pride in getting somebody else over and certainly would have helped uh, Akira Shida in her efforts of getting signed by AEW. And again, Aja Kong makes a major league debut for AAW at their first pay-per-view event or second pay-per-view event. I guess depends on how you feel about um all in double or nothing and she is again a major star of the company she's brought in and is shown reverence to that particular show i don't yes. i think i think that particular show wasn't as important as joshi mania partly because it was there was so much going on on that show that was awesome to the fans who were there that she kind of got lost a little bit but, she did uh, but also she does get that big surprise entrance and yeah. I really liked that. I love the fact that they put Aja Kong on that show and didn't tell anybody. And then she yeah. was just there. Yeah, it was it was something special. And my dad put it, like I said, they've signed Aja Kong for AEW and his reply was, do they realize what they've done? <laughs> <laughs> also, did the trash can... When did the trash can thing start? Because... The, tra- the trash can thing started in the late... 80s you know i think it became more prevalent in the in the gaia era and in the oz academy era 
but she was definitely using trash cans when she started wearing the silk ring gear, the satin ring gear. Mm. So it kind I, of just... I love that she has a trash can with her on her way to the ring everywhere she goes. I, yeah. I think that's great. <laughs> um, I couldn't get them through customs, apparently, on the way back from Japan, because Dan had to go and send somebody out to get dustbins for her. And ah! When when they did the when she did the match with Viper at um, Wrestle Queendom, <laughs> which by the way I was gonna if if we were gonna do a recommended match list at the end of this that oh, yeah. that match would be on it for me because I re- I really enjoyed that one. That was a phenomenal match and it was a good another case of quite clearly Viper is a massive fan of Raja Kong you know the oh yes. the she has and as well I see the like one of the endearing pictures of me from that weekend, not that I took it or was anywhere near it, Chris Wolf and Aja Kong in the pub on the sun, on the Monday after the match. Uh, <sighs> also, Sunday after the match. Because it is just like two of my favourite people in Joshi. Um, and, you know, Chris has had to retire and retire early. And But it is just, it just made me smile so much. It's such a cool picture when Chris posted that. It was like, mm. you know, th- these, these are two warriors. Chris has had a different path but a very hard path to get to where she was in Joshi. Um, um, but they both have a similar path and a similar story to tell. And Chris is so reverential when she speaks about Aisha Khan. You know, yeah. she, she's so... she she uh, The audio I have of Chris Wolf talking about Aisha Khan makes me cry. You know, when I interviewed Aww. her so wrestling, because she chooses she, she because it's such a sincere voice. She says, like, she, she had to try so hard. It was so hard for her, you know, and you can feel like the empathy Chris had for her because Chris was an American in Japan. She went through this process herself. Um, and yeah, it, that, that weekend was special because Pro Wrestling Eve is a promotion I've championed for a long time. I've been a big fan of for a long time. And they got to put on one of their favorite professional wrestlers and they presented her in such the the, the right way that she should be presented in a yeah. match that she was worthy of with an opponent who completely got what she needed to do to wrestle Aja Kong. Um, and Viper is an outstanding professional wrestler. Um, and it just works. And it was also something you wouldn't see in Japan because Viper was at the time was a stardom associated wrestler and uh, Aja won't go there. So, you know, it was it was absolutely unique moment you will not see again. I don't think you will ever see that much again. And it was awesome to be there for that. I'm a little jealous you were there. I just watched it streaming and thought it was great after the fact. But I'm sure I'm sure the energy in person was incredible. Yes, it was. And it was incredible to feel that like Hellion music hitting, uh, you know, Judas Priest blasting over the PA. And, and <laughs> there's, there's Aja Khan. <laughs> I love the crowd marking out for it too. Like I, I, we've talked a lot about pro wrestling Eve on this podcast and I love the reception that they give her where they're just, I mean, they cheer for her like she's a baby face, even though yeah. she's the bad guy. And I, there, there are a lot of matches that she's had in the modern day that are like that, where she gets that hero's welcome everywhere she yeah. goes. Um, I'm thinking in particular of her match against Mia Yim from Shimmer. Yeah. Oh my God. I love that match. And mm. I mean, like Mia Yim is is the biggest fan favorite. Um, it's probably like she was certainly one of the biggest fan favorites on the indies at the time. Let's put it that way. And yeah. and Aja still gets that enormous reaction from the crowd of just like you know they're so delighted to have her there and they're so reverential. 
And um, if anybody hasn't seen that match listening to this, go watch it because it is freaking <laughs> incredible. Um, it is so, think, so good. I think as well, if you can probably find it on the Pro Wrestling Eve YouTube channel, like, there was a qualifying match for that match. Uh, like Viper had this match at the Res, Res Gallery, Resolution Gallery in Bethnal Green. And the screen flashes up Viper's next opponent. And the crowd goes quiet, like pin drop quiet, because they don't, they've heard rumors, but they're not sure. And the mm. pre- screen lights up with Azure Kong, and the place erupts. Yes. You know, that's, that's, that's what you can do with a person like Azure Kong. She isn't this big international star in the mainstream sense, in the same way Hulk Hogan is, but to wrestling fans who love professional wrestling, which, to be fair, as far as the indie fans in the UK are concerned, to a similar extent in America are concerned, those are the ones who were spending the money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to be, yeah. That it was such a it was such a special experience to see it, and it was a special day for me as well because you know Alex uh, Edwards was there and Sai Heath was there. You know, to Sai was one of my best friends and a, br- a brilliant professional wrestling commentator. As far as like being a fan is concerned and Alex Edwards, obviously a person I'd never met before, but I'd known for a very, very long time. It, mm. that, that day weighs in my memory is one of the best days I ever saw at a professional wrestling match. Oh, but, that's really cool. But equally, I got to see Aja Kong and I, and I don't mean to, it's kind of odd because we see Mako Satamura literally on a monthly basis. She's progress women's wrestling champion. <laughs> you know, she is uh, essentially Mako Satamura has come here and slotted in and become a Denzian of the British women's wrestling scene, you know, or the British mm-hmm. wrestling scene. She is, she's as big a draw as Chris Brooks or as Tyler Bate or even Pete Dunne. You know, she's, she's there. She's in that panting of star, more or less in the past four years. And Aja's not like that. She's, I'm guessing she's coming once or twice just to say she's done it, <laughs> you know, and it is like Aja's there and Aja's just, Aja, she's just that good. Mm. What do you think will be the lasting legacy of Arjun Khan? Ooh. I think... Well, so I think she's for sure always going to be considered one of those Joshi legends that people talk about from the 90s, sort of like golden era. Um, mm-hmm. I also think that the the number of years she's been doing this... I mean, she debuted a year before I was born. I'm 32. Um, <laughs> she's still going at it. Been alive. She's she's still going at an extraordinarily high level, and I hope that people talk about her the same way that they talk about Minoru Suzuki, of that yeah. like you know the 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 older badass professional who won't retire, who doesn't need to retire because they're still killing it, um, who just you know continues to do really special and interesting things and is a fan favorite because there's someone that people have uh, you know cared about and have this like reverence for i hope that's how she's talked about um i also think that among wrestlers i think wrestlers know how creative she was and all the different ways that she figured out to use her her size and her body type to make her character um so interesting um, I, uh, I hope that that's a thing that gets considered when people talk about her after she retires. Me too. I'm with you on that. By the way, Minoru Suzuki did wrestle Ajikon. 
2012 for JWP. And it's an absolutely outstanding professional wrestling match, as you would expect. Mm. Um, it's it's just brilliant, and it's a, it's badass story. And yeah, I'll not tell you any more than that because you need to go watch it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> it's just too yeah. good. Right then, well that ends our special on Asia Kong, and this is the beginning the beginner's guide to professional wrestling in Japan. My name's James Troopany. You can follow me at Sheriff Lone Star. I'd like to thank my guest today, Chelsea Spollen. Thank you very much for your time, Mom. Thanks for having me. It was fun. You can find her at Panels and Pros on Twitter. You can find the show at Troopany Show on Twitter and on The Troopany Show at Facebook, where you can, oh, and at Patreon as well. Yeah, be The Troopany Show on Patreon. <laughs> don't forget the oh, Patreon, I, James. <laughs> don't forget the Patreon. They pay us. Uh, you can keep The Troopany Show free forever for everyone. Uh, thank you very much for donating if you have done already um, if you want to go and have a look at our sponsors and partners that'll be your um, powerslam.tv are you looking for the newest and hottest in the world of pro wrestling then check out the amazing action on powerslam.tv, the biggest indie pro wrestling channel in the world. Get over 6,000 hours of the best events from over 150 of your favorite promotions from 20 different countries around the globe. Brands like Progress Wrestling, Evolve Wrestling, Combat Zone, Defy, PCW Ultra, PWX, Over the Top, Shine, and hundreds of others with fresh content added every day for only $5.99 per month. Get your free trial today at powerslam.tv. And also in the Empire Magazine, go check them out. Uh, having a bit of a rest this month after the... Um disaster of the typhoon in tokyo there's not a lot of wrestling news coming out of japan as you can imagine this weekend so the magazine's been set back a couple of days just as a mark of respect for the new japan dojo and people like that who are currently having a not great time because we want to highlight that those people need your help if you want to actually do donate anything i would suggest you donate to the japanese red cross and help some people out that are less fortunate but uh, looking at the pictures of the japanese dojo in uh Tokyo at the moment it's not a great place to be they've got a lot of work there and hopefully the young boys will be able to get it all sorted and make a good living space and training space for themselves soon but thank you for listening to the Troopany show today bye <laughs> bye <laughs>